We are Encountering Silence. Encountering Silence is made possible by the generous support of listeners like you. Please visit patreon.com slash encountering silence to learn more about how you can be part of the circle and share in our efforts to bring silence into our all too noisy world. Reverend Dr. Walter Brueggemann is Professor Emeritus of Old Testament at Columbia Theological Seminary. He is an ordained minister in the United Church of Christ and the author of dozens of books, including The Prophetic Imagination, Sabbath as Resistance, Celebrating Abundance, Devotions for Advent, A Way Other Than Our Own, Devotions for Lent, Journey to the Common Good, and his most recent, Interrupting Silence, God's Command to Speak Out. As a seminary student myself, getting to meet the author of so many of the books we read is an honor and a joy. And most recently in a class, we read Journey to the Common Good, where Dr. Brueggemann writes, it is not clear that life can be construed beyond empire, but the poets have to try. And in this world of chaos and discourse, Dr. Brueggemann writes in his 2018 book, Interrupting Silence, silence is a complex matter. It can refer to awe before unutterable holiness but it can also refer to the coercion when some voices are, are silenced in the interest of control by the dominant voices. Dr. Brueggemann, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. I'm glad to get to be with you. So oftentimes we like to begin with a question about um, how silence has been a part of your life and your spiritual journey. I don't know if you can think of a time from childhood or later on when you first encountered silence in a particularly meaningful way. Uh, well, if, uh, my my book is uh, basically about uh, coercive or repressive silence, and I recall when I was very young, uh, somewhere I heard the word damn, and I said the word damn. Of course, I had no idea what it meant, but I do remember that my mother washed my mouth out with soap uh, to get that out, and uh, I guess you could call that silencing. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you sure that could. Was, uh, you know, that was a time when that was one of the ways kids learned the rules of the community. And <laughs> so I remember that. Yeah. It sounds like a, yeah, very memorable event. So. Yes. <laughs> well, did you ever feel like you had an experience of silence that represented for you an opening up? Uh, that awe before holiness that you referred to in your book? Yeah, I, I think uh, my uh, one of my defining memories of that uh, when I was in high school, I went to church camp, and uh, there was a fairly big accent on uh, silence through morning watch and that sort of business. And uh, I would say that was a, a very important uh, time for me. I, uh, I think that um, my sense of call to ministry gelled uh, during those times at church camp. And uh, I suspect that the silence was uh, an important part of that. Yeah. Have you found silence or contemplation to be an important part of the, I mean, you've written so, so much. Um, and I wonder if that's a part of your practice at all for writing. Uh, I wouldn't say that. Uh, I spend my time with the text. Mm -hmm. And I guess uh, 
I guess it would be possible to say that my uh, study of and rumination of the text is a form of contemplation uh, because uh, my habit is to uh, let my imagination be led when I'm looking at texts. And uh, I, I think that's a form of it. It's not the kind of uh, uh, silence which you mentioned with Merton uh, and so on. I think uh, that's not a tradition I inhabit. Uh, mm -hmm. I'm much more uh, text-based than that. Mm -hmm. and, and so then following the, along those lines of being text-based, your work with the Hebrew scriptures and attempting to be present to and to understand the voice that speaks through those scriptures. Uh, I'm kind of curious because I love the interplay of your work about this holy awe this presence, and yet yep. empire trying to crush it. Right. Uh, and, yep. and do you find that that is the, the thread that guides your thinking on silence, that line? Yes, I, I would say that's right. And the way, um, the way empire works about the text uh, is to insist that texts have only one meaning. Mm -hmm. uh, and on the one hand, Fundamentalism believes that texts have only one meaning, but on the other hand, uh, liberals, by the practice of historical criticism, also want to think that the text has only one meaning. So uh, it took me a long time to uh, mm. see uh, that texts have many meanings, and uh, I, I basically learned that from the rabbis, mm. uh, and the way I like to say it is that the rabbis understood that if you get a final reading of a text, you will soon get a final solution. Mm. So final readings lead to a kind of a exclusionary absolutism. So there's a great deal at stake in recognizing that texts have more than one meaning. And uh, I think our uh, traditional way of speaking about that in the Bible uh, is that we say that our reading of the Bible is led by the Spirit. And uh, the Spirit is the kind of uh, uh, liberating force of the biblical text. Uh, and uh, that's, not, uh, that's not foolproof. And sometimes we uh, imagine things that are not Spirit-led, but, but I think that's the justification for recognizing that the text has many meanings because the spirit of God is essentially emancipatory. And uh, our work in the biblical text is to read the text in emancipatory ways, I think. Yeah, wonderful. I mean, it just reminds me that you said about the rabbis, what's that joke? Um, you get four rabbis in the room and you have five opinions? Or That's yeah. right. Yeah. That's exactly right. <laughs> I heard it was seven. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, so, so, right. Dr. Brueggemann, listening to you speak just now, what, what struck me was that the, the pun between spirit and breath, yes. um, spirit, inspiration, isn't it true that in Hebrew, the same word for breath is also a word for spirit? Or yes, word? and also the word for wind. Yes, yeah, so like in, mm -hmm. in, the, in the first chapter of Genesis, That's the correct. wind blowing over is also the spirit blowing over is also the breath of God. That's right, yeah. Well, is it too far of, an, of a hermeneutical leap 
to suggest that spirit, if spirit is breath, breath by its very nature is silent because breath is not the same thing as word or language? I wouldn't, I wouldn't go that far, but okay. you can. <laughs> but it would be, would it be too far a leap? Would it be bad to go in that direction? Would you think that would start moving in a wrong direction or is that? Oh, I don't, I don't think it would be bad. Mm. Uh, that, that's why uh, many meanings uh, are possible. <laughs> uh, I, I don't, I don't know whether you can uh, finally say that the, the Ruach spirit wind breath is silent. Uh, I had I had not thought about it that way uh, because uh, you can also imagine uh, deep breathing mm. or <laughs> uh, we we maybe make sounds when we breathe if we have right. keen enough ears. So mm -hmm. you know I think that's uh, a little tricky, but it's okay. Yeah. Well, to to push my to push my envelope a little bit further and guys rein me in if you need to no go for some. it I was a, I think we're going in the same place to, yeah <laughs> okay well I'm also thinking about um, Elijah on the mountain of the Lord yes mm -hmm. and again I am not a Hebrew scholar so yeah. I'm, I'm I'm presenting this to kind of get your take on this but but that verse that gets translated as a still small voice or yeah. a light silent sound or you know yeah. different different translations render right. it different way. But it seems to me that, you know, he, God is not in the fire, not in the earthquake, not even in the wind, yeah. but then in the light, silent sound. And so I, I'm just wondering if there is something here suggesting kind of that, that, that in silence or in the cessation of the, of the noise, yeah. we can encounter the Well, heart. as you know, that's a very tricky verse, but the word voice does occur, the, the word call. So... Uh, uh, you have to be very careful about that, I think. It's, yeah. it's, it's a paradox, it seems. It is. It yeah. is. Yeah. I think I think I might suggest, and, and this is from my own experience, um, and correct me if I'm wrong, anyone, but it seems to me that it becomes problematic when we talk about things like this when it it just sticks with the status quo and sticks with comfort. And if we're sticking with those things, in order to stay aligned with silence, I think that's when things become problematic and it crosses a line. That's right. That's right. Yeah. So my real interest in this little book is really the the uh, the problem of coercive silence. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I had I wrote a chapter uh, for the book that the editors left out, which was oh. a, an exposition of uh, Habakkuk two twenty, uh, which says uh, the Lord is in His holy temple. That all the earth keeps silent, and I interpret. I, I suppose the reason they left it out is that I interpreted that as the coercive force of priests wanting people to be silent in church. And then I got to thinking that the more affluent a church is, the more it drifts toward silence, and uh, the, mm. the the more. The less affluent, the more you get many sounds and many noises and, and all of that. So I don't know whether that's uh, that's persuasive, but it's a thought I had. Obviously, that text in Habakkuk uh, can be interpreted other than I did it. Uh, and that's probably what the editors at the press thought I should have done. So <laughs> I didn't ask them about it. So.
Our conversation will return after this brief moment of silence. Please take a breath with us and join us for this 30 seconds of silence. And, and Dr. Brueggemann, just how much you write about that the oppressed will not stay silent and that, you know, the churches need to align with um, the oppressed and the marginalized, you know, that implies that a not silent situation because the cry will come out as well, you I think write. that's exactly right. And that, mm -hmm. that's really the main thrust of the, of the text I've studied mm -hmm. uh, so that I think that the uh, uh, one piece of the work of the church is to giving voice to the voiceless. Yeah. Uh, and uh, it's true about uh, gays, it's true about mm -hmm. it's true about women and, mm -hmm. and so on. We all know the list uh, so that the people who live at the center of power always want to be the only voice. Then when the text is read by people like that, the text can have only one meaning mm -hmm. and so on. Yeah. You know, you also write a lot about, obviously, the, the prophet, the artist, and the great imagination that we can all tap into. And um, you write about, in the prophetic imagination, you write, thus every totalitarian regime is frightened of the artist. It is the vocation of the prophet to keep alive the ministry of imagination to keep on conjuring and proposing futures alternative to the single one the king wants to urge as the only thinkable one. And so along with that, I just, first, it when I read your work, a lot of times I, I see an interchange between artist, prophet, and, you know, imagination, really. And I wonder if, if there's a distinction for you or if those are, are all intertwined. Well, I think you could give different nuances, but, but I would put all of those together under the rubric of saying that what artists, poets, prophets do is that they host a world that's other than the one in front of us. Yeah. And uh, the managers of the status quo want us to believe that the world in front of us is the only available world. So I think you can see that now uh, with the uh, shriveling up of tax money for schools. The first thing that goes are the arts from the curriculum. Nobody thinks that football ought to be the first thing to go uh, because that's kind of a nice uh, status quo exercise. Uh, mm. So I think you can see uh, that status quo people always want to curb the arts, the poets, the prophets. Uh, so the silencing of the prophets is a consistent enterprise in the biblical text. And you could argue that in uh, Christian faith, ultimately the execution of Jesus was a silencing of an alternative voice uh, because the Roman Empire couldn't tolerate 
such uh, alternative imagination. We, we speak a lot on this podcast about what we call toxic silence. Toxic and I, silence. And I think that's yeah. very much what, what you're getting at here, this the silence that is used as a tool for oppression. That's or, correct. Or as, as, a way, yeah, as a way of social control or political control. You yep. know, you, you, you've you blown my mind with your interpretation of Habakkuk 2.20, but it also makes me realize, you know, for example, I, I grew up in a in a middle class home where we were taught that in polite company you don't discuss politics or religion. Right. And it wasn't until I was an adult that I realized that that was a marker of my social privilege. That right. that we had the option of remaining silent on those right. on those topics. That's and right. so, you know, and this is something we've looked at a lot is what is the relationship between silence and privilege? And your, your comment about less affluent communities of faith may be noisier communities, but they're noisier because they're in the interest of giving those alternative voices That's right. a forum. Uh, that reminds me, we had a theologian named Barbara Holmes on here a while back who writes about the contemplative practices of the African... Okay, there you go. Contemplative wow. practices of the African-American church. <laughs> which um, you know, does not look like a bunch of middle-class white folks sitting around doing centering prayer. It looks, right. a, lot, it looks right. a lot different. So. And of course, the, ex the extreme uh, uh, manifestation of that are holy rollers, mm. holy rollers who break out in all kinds of speech. Uh, and I suspect uh, people who do that are people who most of their socioeconomic political circumstance have to keep silent, except when they get in this meeting where the voices break out. Mm. Uh, and I think that's uh, easy to understand when you think of it that way. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Now, how do the Quakers fit into all this? They're kind of the outliers. Here. Uh, they are. And, and I don't know how to uh, compute that, uh, except that uh, Quaker silence is not empty silence and it's not coerced silence. Uh, so it's a very different kind of silence, which historically, of course, has been very generative. Yeah. I, I love, as Cassidy pointed out, I love the fact that you're talking about art, poetic verse, especially that you find mm -hmm. in scripture as a space that's a very different kind of writing. It's a different kind of speech that has multiple meanings underlying. It has to, right? And, and what I also find interesting, how it Hebrew poetry, right? What A lot of it is uh, there's ambiguity in the meaning in how you pronounce the words and the line breaks and where the breath is and all that stuff will affect how you translate that verse, right? Yep. So articulating through reading and speaking the word yep. will translate and transform the text. That's right. I don't know whether any of you have studied Hebrew. Very little, just a little in, bit. In, in Hebrew, there is a, a device that the, that the uh, text makers use called Kathiv Karei. Yeah. And the cathive is the writing of the consonants of a word, and the kare is the vowels. 
And what the rabbis did by using the, the consonants of one word for which you have to know the vowels and using the vowels for which you have to know the consonants, they permitted you to have a double reading right in the middle of the biblical text. Mm -hmm. And uh, those vowels and those consonants that are written in the text do not go together. You have to you have to separate those. And one of the big mistakes that we have in translation is that the tradition has not understood that those vowels and those consonants don't go together. And in one case, that yields the word Jehovah. Jehovah is a combination of the consonants of one word and the vowels of another word in which Gentiles didn't understand what the Hebrew was doing. So it's wonderful to see that even in the biblical text, the rabbis uh, maintained a zone of interpretive freedom mm -hmm. uh, that uh, in, our, in our literalism and one-dimensional thinking, we don't recognize that or honor it most often. It's amazing, yeah. I don't. I don't think I've ever seen a translation of the Bible. Correct me if I'm wrong. I don't think I've ever seen a translation of the Bible that plays with that. D that gives like right on the text, like here. Here's two or three different meanings because of the vowel consonant right. thing. Right. Well, uh, I think most translators would say you have to just. You always have to decide. Interesting. And, and the problem is, if you decide on one translation, then you are excluding other possible translations. Yeah. But that's a good thing because that leaves more work for us to do when we go back and write our commentaries. So, <laughs> there you go. <laughs> yeah, it does give us jobs. That is lovely. <laughs> yeah. And Dr. Brueggemann, I, I rely on people like you to um, to give me these kinds of this this kind of information and proper interpretation because so often things get so misconstrued and you know, we need to navigate things for our own, for ourselves. And as a queer woman, you know, that took me navigating different scriptures um, on my own so that I knew um, what truth was for me. And I want to talk a little bit about, about stamina and about stamina in this world needing of so much liberation. In Interrupting Silence, you write, we have seen in our own day in so many liberation struggles that the first cry for mercy does not succeed. The silencers are powerful and determined. Among us, the silencers are the powerful who have stake in the status quo and do not mind some poverty-stricken disability and those who collude with the powerful, often unwittingly. The work of silencing like that of the crowd is various, variously by slogan, by intimidation, by deception, or by restrictive legislation. Emancipation does not succeed most often in a one-shot effort. More is required. And so my question for you is, what's your advice for people, for us amid this struggle in a world where we need to keep going to keep pursuing liberation? Well, I don't know that I have any advice. <laughs> I think I probably wrote that with reference to uh, Bartimaeus and Mark 10. Is that right? Or It's an amazing story in which this blind beggar is silenced and then the text says he cried out all the more. Mm -hmm, uh, mm -hmm. So I think it's important in the, in the liberation struggles to remember that we are in it 
for the long haul, and we shouldn't excessively uh, overstate defeats, but we shouldn't over-celebrate triumphs mm. uh, because the work is long and the work is hard, and we need to be strategic about that. And I think the, the people who uh, have stayed at it, I think uh, Dr. Barber now is a wonderful example of that in which he is uh, very strategic about building a movement rather than committing some dramatic act. And I think uh, people who come fresh uh, to liberation struggles are often tempted to want to commit a dramatic act and sometimes that's useful, but very often uh, to remember that it's the long haul uh, is, a, is a kind of a, a sobering reality uh, for the work that we have to do, I think. This concludes part one of a two-part episode. Stick with us next week when we hear part two. We are Encountering Silence. I'm Cassidy Hall. To learn more about me, please visit CassidyHall.com. I'm Kevin Johnson. To find out more about my work, visit my website, KevinMichaelJohnson.com. I'm Carl McCollman. My website is CarlMcCollman.com. Please visit the podcast website at EncounteringSilence.com. There you can learn more about each of our episodes and find links to purchase books and other resources we discuss on the podcast. By making a purchase through our website, the podcast receives a small affiliate commission from Amazon.com. Also, to learn more about how you can be a part of our circle of supporters, visit Patreon.com slash EncounteringSilence. This way you can share in our efforts to bring meaningful conversations about silence to our all-too-noisy world.